let's pray. And I'd like to adopt the opening prayer from the last page of our liturgy. So, Father, we ask that um, as we listen to your word, that uh, you may prepare us so that when your son Jesus comes in power and glory, we may be able to meet him without shame or fear. And we ask this through Jesus, the Messiah, yes, the glory of Israel and the light of the nations. Amen. passage that we have in front of us today is a well-known passage. <coughs> it is a passage about the end of the age, and it is a um, very appropriate passage because we are going to be reminded about the end at the very beginning. Advent, first Sunday in Advent, is the beginning of the Christian year. This is when we begin a new series of readings. <clears throat> Last year we were uh, primarily reading through, preaching through the book of Matthew. This year it will be through the book of Mark, and uh, we will be largely exclusively in Mark's gospel, yes, up until the Advent next year. And, um, of course, Advent starts off what we know in the West as the Christmas season. And uh, Christmas is, you know, Christmas is about um, self-indulgence and parties and overeating and overshopping. And... Uh, this reminds us, this reminds us, yes, that the um, first coming, yes, the coming of Jesus, it's not always sweetness and light. It's good news for some people, but ultimately it will be bad news for others. And so it's a very sobering, it's a very sobering text. We, um, I think, want to read the passage in such a way, I hope we can read it in such a way this evening, that it not only prepares us for the coming of the Lord, but it speaks to us, yes, in whatever situation that we find ourselves personally, and it speaks to us, yes, in the situation or speaks to us in the context, yes, of the nations of the world today. Very, very easy to put all of this in the future and to have a certain excitement about <clears throat> things or maybe even anxiety about things that are going to happen. And somehow what Jesus is teaching doesn't help us live our lives as disciples today. Or even worse, is many people who have become complacent and apathetic. Well, this was 2,000 years ago. Jesus hasn't come back. 
you know, this really is kind of irrelevant. And uh, I don't need to live my life in the light of the return of Jesus. Yeah, both approaches are long. And let's see how it speaks, let's hopefully see how it speaks to us, uh, speaks to us today. Um, the passage, Mark 13, can and should be read in context with Matthew 24. Jesus is teaching something very similar. Luke 21, each of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, yes, they have basically the same core of teaching, but they have, you might say, a different slant. Uh, and so it is worthwhile studying Mark 13 in connection with Matthew 24 and Luke 21. But also it's worth looking at this passage in the context of Mark's gospel itself. And the gospel of Mark, um, the gospel of Mark, it's I, in some ways strikes me is that first and foremost, it is about a spiritual conflict. It's about war. And the gospel begins in chapter where they, they you might say, the verse that somehow is central to the whole gospel is when Jesus gets baptized. And when Jesus goes down into the water, it tells us in Mark chapter 1, the Spirit, yes, came down upon him like a dove. Okay. And um, the heavens were torn open. And the word for word for torn in Greek is something that's very violent, very sharp. Yes, it's not a gentle tear. The heavens are torn open. And as we read in Isaiah, God comes down and God enters, yes, in and through the person of Jesus, the Messiah. And it will be Satan it will be the powers and principalities, whether they are human powers or principalities or spiritual powers and principalities, political systems, religious systems, yes, and including the disciples of Jesus yeah, himself. All of these will be opposed, well, all of these will be arraigned against Jesus and they will all try to oppose him Yes, stop him from ultimately going to the cross. And the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, is about these trials, yes, uh, that Jesus has to overcome, yes, to make it to the cross and ultimately to the empty tomb. So, this spiritual warfare, of course, is going to be reflected in Mark 13. But what I think is important is that not only was Jesus tested, not only was Jesus on trial from his, you know, his uh, baptism and his experience in the wilderness, yes, all the way uh, to the empty tomb, but his disciples, yes, faced many of the same trials and many of the same tests. 
And these are uh, instructions in a way that should help us overcome yeah, the obstacles, temptations that, uh, that we face. So spiritual warfare or warfare, conflict, trouble, oppression, it's a biblical pattern. And what we see in Mark 13, I think is um, laid out very nicely for us in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 12, and Daniel the prophet is important for the entire chapter. It says this, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found uh, written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Right? What is this pattern? The pattern is, is that there trouble, difficulty, tribulation, if you want to use the term. So we're discussing Chinese history earlier, so they used the phrase of Mao Zedong, great chaos under heaven. But ultimately, yes, ultimately, yes, with God's intervention, that ends up, yes, there's what comes out of it is resurrection and judgment, right? Ultimately, there's redemption. And this pattern repeats itself throughout the, the, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, very well-known is the phrase, the birth pangs of the Messiah. And um, there are a number of, ex of examples. Yes. So, for example, Jeremiah 30. Um, when the Lord says, I'm going to bring my people back to captivity, back, back from captivity, sorry, but before the return from captivity, it's not going to be an easy road. So reading from verses uh, four onwards, these are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. This is what the Lord says, cries of fear are heard, terror, not peace, ask and see, can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Every face turned deathly pale. How awful that day will be. None will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. Yes, and it goes on to talk about the Lord's redemption. Very much even more famously is the verse that we all love at Christmas. It's from, of course, the book of Micah. Micah chapter 5. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, or from 
eternity from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of her brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. What happens before that? Birth pangs. Yes, the birth pangs of the Messiah. There's great risk, there's great pain, but ultimately, there will be great joy, yes, with the birth of a child, or in this case, with redemption. This is the biblical pattern. This is, I think, relevant for us, not only if we think about the end times, but uh, it might be relevant for us in the life of a church, in the life of a nation, or even at times, yes, in our own personal struggles or our own walk with the Lord. And so what comes out of this passage, which might seem confusing, might seem a bit uh, frightening, well, I think um, there are at least two issues for us to be, I think, concerned about, at least in the times in which we live. And so they are highlighted for us. First, it's persecution. Um, it's persecution. Jesus, beginning of the chapter, he tells us uh, that um, we have to be on our guard, that many will come, and uh, we will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues, on account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. I'm going to skip a verse and come back to it. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. If that, if that isn't bad enough, yes, it gets worse. Brother will betray brother to death. And father his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So here Jesus is warning, right, again, before he promises redemption, that there's certainly going to be testing, trials, yes, obstacles put in way of the, of the believers, and that will manifest itself in persecution, but it will also manifest itself in betrayal. Yes, in the midst of the persecution, there will be family members uh, who, for one reason or another, out of fear, out of jealousy, uh, out of a desire not to uh, suffer persecution themselves, they will turn, turn uh, they will inform unbelievers turn them in, and um, this betrayal, of course, is, especially if it comes from within a family, becomes extremely, extremely painful. This is not the gossiping about someone or having someone fired from their job. We're talking about uh, 
train relatives that will lead to their death. And in many totalitarian countries, communist countries, uh, the Soviet Union in its worst days, and in other countries, such as Romania, we know that this was, uh, this was a, a reality. Second thing that Jesus warns about that's extremely, I think, pertinent for us, he says in a number of places, he says, Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. Yes. And then Jesus, later on in the same chapter, he says, At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Messiah, or look, here he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything, okay, ahead of time. So a number of places, Jesus warns of deception. And he warns that many will be false prophets, many will be false messiahs. And I think what's re perhaps really pertinent about this and even very relevant for us is that as we face difficult times. It could be personally. Again, it could be in a national context. It could be at the end of days. Right? Things get desperate, and they become frightening, and they become scary. Um, people begin to l latch on to personalities. Right? We have the rise of the charismatic leader. The leader who says, I can fix everything for you. Yes, I can really identify with you. I really understand you. And, uh, you know, it's if we can just get rid of your enemies, you know, those Republicans, those Democrats, those socialists, the, whoever it may be, those capitalists, yeah, if we just, everything will be will be so much better. And it's in that desperation um, that uh, we become very, very susceptible to someone who's promised, someone other than Jesus, who's going to promise us some kind of redemption, some kind of miracle cure, some kind of shortcut. Brothers and sisters, beware of anyone who's offering a quick fix yes, to all the solutions of this world. And Jesus, when he had to confront the zealots of his age or the extremists of his age who said, in that Jewish context, you know, probably they went, you know, God is on our side. And he won't let the temple be destroyed uh, because he's going to bring us redemption. And there's many messianic signs and uh, miracles happening, telling us we need to rebel. Yes, we need to, you know, overthrow the Romans. Isn't it interesting how the chapter starts off when the disciples say, look at our beautiful cathedral. Yes, look at how, uh, look at how marvelous this temple is. Or the modern context would be, 
surely we're too big to fail. Or God's got special plans for our church or our country. He's not, <clears throat> we're not going to come under any kind of judgment. We won't reap what we sow because we have a special anointing or we have a special calling. Yes, all of that is a deception. And we have better be very careful. And it gets even in the church because many times when we don't always think God is hearing us or somehow he's left us, then we kind of latch on to someone who we think has spiritual power. Yes, they may be a little shady, but if they pray and someone gets healed, then we think, yeah, 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 we need to attach ourselves to that person. We need to overlook the fact that maybe he's on his third wife. Never mind, we, we, he's got the Holy Spirit with him. And who are we to question the way God works? Yes, so signs, wonders, miracles. By the way, these are all wonderful things. But none of those things, yes, actually, uh, actually prove someone is from God or someone is the Messiah. You may remember the words of um, Jesus in the book of Matthew when people come to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Yes. Didn't we work miracles in your name? And Jesus says to them, because they're workers of lawlessness, what does he say? Go away from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Very frightening words, but also very sobering. And again, I don't say this to demean miracles or the movement of the Holy Spirit or works of healing or works of deliverance. Those things have not disappeared in the church. But Jesus is warning about deception. Yes, and when we get desperate, we're, we're very easily, easily deceived. Yes. Now, what are the, maybe the takeaways from, uh, from all of this? Or what, what should we, I think the first thing is that we're not to panic. Now, I know when we talk about the end, or when we talk about the signs, or is Jesus coming again? I know a whole bunch of people who spend their time on the edge of their chair, waiting, looking, trying to figure out when the European Union is going to do this and when Putin is going to invade Israel. And by the way, being kind of disappointed that Henry Kissinger didn't turn out to be the Antichrist <coughs> because he's gone to his reward. May the Lord be merciful. Okay. Yeah. Look, when Jesus says, be watchful, stay awake, it's not that kind of anxiety or that kind of hysteria. We just read, he said, even if you're arrested and you've got to give a defense of your faith, don't be anxious, don't worry. Yes, we can watch and be awake without being in a state of either hysteria or panic. Or actually, even at the end of the day, being f focused on all the signs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
May I remind you, Jesus doesn't know when he's returning, and neither do I. Yes, the angels don't know when Jesus is returning. And with all the best intentions of many people who are writing books about prophecy, etc., etc., they don't know as well. Yes, the message is very simple. Be watchful, be ready. Be ready. But the, 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 I think the first thing that, strike, that strikes me, which is very important, is a passage that we didn't read. And the passage was as follows. It says, uh, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing uh, where it does not belong, okay, it says flee. Now, here's prophecy. I, I believe, and you may disagree with me, Jesus is talking about the destruct, coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Yes, Jesus warns and prophesies about this event. And then it, it's, he goes on to say, he says that um, it's going to be very dreadful in that day for pregnant women, nursing mothers. Pray this will not take place in winter. Okay, because those will be days of distress unequal from the beginning. Here's an event that's prophesied. It's supposed to happen. And what is Jesus saying? Pray that it's modified. Pray that it's not quite as bad. Now, we don't usually think in those terms, do we? Because we think, oh, there's a prophecy. It's got to be that way. There's nothing that's going to change it. But that's not the nature of prophecy. The nature of prophecy is God responds to um, repentance. God responds to humility. God can change or modify. And here, you know, there might, here it's telling us there might be terrible events coming, you know, our way, coming down the road at quite a great speed. But we can pray, yes, the sake of our families, for the sake of the church, for the sake of those who don't know the Lord. Maybe we can even pray that it doesn't happen in our lifetime. Is that heresy? My dear friends, when God brings judgment, it's, it's not only the wicked suffer, but so too do the righteous. And if you say we're going up in the rapture, um, with all due respect, would say, I don't find it so convincing. Maybe you can prove it to me, but when God judges, the innocent, the righteous, suffer along with the wicked. Yes, and for again, for the sake of those who are righteous, or for the sake of those, yes, who do not yet know the Lord and not have yet repented, who knows what we can accomplish with prayer. Remember when Jesus um, is in the garden? And by the way, it is, it is very interesting. What Jesus talks about in this chapter, Matthew 13, it foreshadows what happens to Jesus in, sorry, Mark 13. It foreshadows what happens to Jesus in Mark 14. Because it's there that Jesus is handed over. Yes, remember he warns we will be handed over. 
He's handed over who? To the religious authorities and to the civil authorities. He's flogged. Yes, Jesus and then is accused of being of all kinds of all kinds of false charges are brought against Jesus. He said this, he said that. Yes. And of course, ultimately, Jesus uh, goes to the cross. But what does Jesus say? Jesus points his back, yes, to the importance of prayer, to the power of prayer. So in the garden, his disciples are betraying him. Yes, his best friends are, are about to betray him and to run away. Yes, and so, and one other thing, when these things happen to us, surely we have someone sitting at the right hand of the Father who can identify with us, who can understand what we're going through because they happened to him. So Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He tells the disciples, um, could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. Yes, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Yes, the spirit is willing, the body is weak. And so prayer is important and it's even essential because when we find ourselves in difficulty or tribulation, big tribulation, small tri tribulation, it's very easy to become what? Disheartened, to lose faith, to feel like life is beating us up, right? and to lose the desire to fight or to, to struggle in prayer. And by the way, the same goes with deception. Pray that we do not fall into temptation. Yes, pray that we do not fall into temptation, that we're not easily deceived. We don't take the shortcut. Yes, or that we don't fall for a false teaching or a false, even a false way of living. Not just some false doctrine. Lots of people have good doctrine, but they, but they live their life in a way that uh, dishonors the Lord. And we can oftentimes find uh, ex excuses for such a thing. The second thing that I think we take away from this, right? Again, I think it applies to us in the days in which we live. Maybe this is the end, maybe not. But in chaos, yes, in disaster, in persecution, in spiritual confusion, yes, what does Jesus tell us? He tells us that this gospel has to go to all the nations of the world, that we have to remain and I know I could get in trouble for this. I know I might lose my visa. Yes, but I'm going to say it anyway. And by the way, as I told folks this morning, I don't want to stand before the Lord. And when he asked me, well, what did you do in Jerusalem? I can say, Lord, I kept my visa. I kept my visa. <clears throat> Here it is in my passport. You see, Lord, surely I get a mansion and a chauffeur, you know, for such a thing. It's to be missional. This gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, has to be preached to every nation. Every nation, we have a job to do. Yes, it's, by the way, it's, it's in 
Mark's parable. Mark gives us a parable that nobody else, nobody else has, right? He says, yes. Um, it's like a man who's gone away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Yes, all of us have an assigned task. We all have a mission. And by that, I don't mean you're necessarily on the street beating people over the head with Bible verses. But we all have a mission. We've all been called to ministry. We've all been called Yes, to use the gifts that the Lord has given us. And why does Jesus have to say this? Because, uh, again, in the context of chaos or in the context of trouble, could be family trouble, national trouble like this war, it is so easy to shut down and think, hey, I got to look after myself. I got to protect myself. I got to make sure I got my one year food supply and my gold coins and I got my, you know, this and that and I'm all ready. I gotta survive. I gotta now look after my family. But Jesus is saying, no, don't do that. Yes, keep your focus on the mission. Do those things that I've called each one of us to do. This becomes important and essential to Jesus. And the gospel must be preached to all the nations of the world. Not that all the nations of the world may accept it, but it's we read in Romans chapter 11, yes, it's connected to this theme, this idea of the, yes, the, uh, what do you call it, uh, the age of the Gentiles, right? It's, and when the age of the Gentiles is over, yes, and then God will begin, will begin his work. Pardon? Remind me of the, remind me of the, Reuben, I forgot the times of the Gentiles. Thank you. This is it's Romans chapter 11. And by the way, in, in Mark, in Mark, what, what is it that, it's not just words. What is it that uh, becomes a witness? Yes, what becomes a witness is faithful suffering, right? Suffering despite persecution, or suffering despite being unpopular, yes, not having anyone like you on Facebook, or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be, or having people call you some kind of, attach some kind of phobia to your name because you don't go along with sin. Yes, it's that kind of suffering, yes, that bears, bears faithful suffering that bears witness to Jesus. Okay, and that, let me read to you from 2 Corinthians 4. It says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life might be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, 
but life is at work in you. Life is at work with you. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, the last thing that Jesus says, and the thing that is, is, I think, a significant witness to the world, is not be missional, exactly, but be ethical. Right? A lot of times when people think about the end times, they throw out all kinds of ethics, or, or they'll think in terms of obeying the commandments of Jesus, or remaining uh, uh, faithful to the teachings of Jesus, because after all, it's an emergency, and, and, and th- the situation isn't normal, so it calls you know, for, it allows us to, to act and live in such a way that um, would be contrary. Yes, to, to Jesus himself. Of course, the book of Matthew ends telling us, feed the hungry, and to clothe the naked, and to visit those who are in prison, because by doing that, we're doing it to the Lord himself. Yes. So I think be prayerful, yes, not to become so hardened or so beat up that we can't pray anymore. And I think uh, to, to look outward. Don't let our love grow cold, that we refuse to give ourselves away or to care for others. And finally, finally, yeah, back to where we started. So it could be in the life of a, it could be in the life of a community, it could be in the life of a family could be in the life of the nation, or we might be, again, talking about the end days. But so often the pattern is tribulation will be followed by redemption. Yes, it's, we must be faithful and wait for that redemption. And of course, the redemption is glorious because Jesus tells us, he says, at that time, Men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds of the earth. Yes, to the ends of the heavens. Here in Mark's gospel, it's the elect who are gathered. But interestingly enough, in Luke's gospel, it's the people of Israel who are regathered. Yes, uh, regathered into their land. Jerusalem that was trampled down by the Gentiles, yes, will now know an era, an era of redemption. And then Jesus says this, and this is where we end. Now learn the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Yes, what does that mean? Some people understand it to be the, the state of Israel. And of course, they say, the next verse tells us that generation will not pass away. But it's getting to be a little bit of a problem because people expected the Lord to come back, as Aaron always tells us, in 1988, 40 years after you know, the establishment of the state. Well, maybe a generation's 50 years, or 60 years, or 70 years. I mean... I think the intention was good, but that's not the meaning. But the Jewish people understood, yes, they understood the fig tree, yes, to be a sign. 
And the fig tree um, in Jewish commentary and in uh, Jewish understanding, the fig tree dies. Uh, and then as summer approaches, it puts out fruit, small, small fruit. But the, they call it a pug in Hebrew, a pug. And this fruit is very bitter. You can't eat it. It's not very sweet. But as the summer goes on, and uh, as it gets closer and closer to, yes, to the end of summer, and we, here we have a, a play on words in Hebrew that I don't think I have time to go into, but as the summer goes on and on, then the fruit, yes, becomes uh, more, becomes very sweet and very edible, right? Meaning, yes, what is bitter, what, is, what was once dead, and once bitter, yes, now comes to life. And when Jesus says, learn the lesson of the fig tree, he's telling us there is hope. Yes, and whatever situation we find ourselves, especially in a situation of difficulty, there is hope. There might be testing. There might be the Lord's discipline. Yes, in Isaiah and, and in, in this chapter in Mark, there's certainly the Lord's judgment. But in all these things, he calls us to be faithful. And the way that we do that is to be prayerful. And the way that we do that is to be missional, to look outward, yes, and not to retreat inwards. And eventually, redemption comes. And redemption comes with a great reward. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, yes, will never, yeah, will never do so. Now, that's the confidence I hope that we all can have. Yes? And that's why we should cherish reading Mark 13 or Luke 21 or Matthew 24. Yes? And uh, make it a part of our, yes, uh, really part of our prayer life or the part of the way that we um, can take encouragement yeah, in whatever, situ whatever difficult situation in which we find ourselves. Amen.